We're taking a look at John 13 today. And it's pretty apropos since we started into February, um, the love month, Valentine's Day. You see all the pinks and all the reds and all the chocolates and love, love, love. Love, love, love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the most misunderstood word, I think, in our English language, right? I got it on. It's hiding. It's a major feat to get. Now, my husband's going to have to edit this now. Um, um, But anyways, love, because we can say, um, I love my dog, and I love pizza, and I love my husband, and I love God. Are those the same kinds of love? Mm -mm. The world's version of love is very narcissistic, self-centered, self-focused. It can be shamelessly manipulative. Today's love sees other people as a means for self-gratification. I love you because you take care of me. I love you because you cook and clean for me. I love you for what you do for me. Is that love? Well, those relationships that are based on that kind of love don't really last. If we look at another chapter 13 over in 1 Corinthians, we have God's definition of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That definition of love requires humility because it's not self-focused, it's other-focused in the relationship. And that kind of love is pretty much impossible to live in the strength of our own flesh. That kind of love takes the power of God. And God is love. God is love. So no one who, anyone who does not have a relationship with God misses this whole concept of it. And we'll take it a little bit further because God is love. The very first fruit of the spirit listed is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Love. And so love indwells every single believer because every single believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So that attribute of God being love, Holy Spirit, attribute love is in us. So it's up to us to let that love manifest itself. As we look at chapter 13 of John, we're going to be delving into truly the greatest display of love in human history that will ever even happen, ever. This chapter opens up, Jesus has finished his public ministry, and he has gone into kind of hiding. He's removed himself from people. And now we're going to look at, he's turned his attention 
from the public ministry to taking care of his beloved disciples and getting them ready for what is about to come. And he does. He equips us. He calls us to do something. He's going to equip us. So he's focused in on his, on his disciples now. Um, privately. So, Christ's love, because he loves them, he's going to prepare them for what's about to come. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he depart to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end, an unfailing love. Now, the Passover feast is about to be celebrated, and we started the Gospel of John with what? John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this is the Lamb of God. This is the week. This is just a few days from the cross right now. And God's Lamb, sacrificial Lamb, is about to celebrate the Passover feast, and he's going to turn it into the Lord's Supper, but we'll get to that when we get to that. So the Passover, as you can refresh your memory, it was just there for, for all these years celebrating it as to remind them of the bondage that they were taken out of from Egypt. And in order to get out with the last plague that was happening, if they didn't, you know, they had, the, they had their Passover meal and they took blood from that lamb and they put it over their the, um, the head, over the doorpost, and so when the death angel of death came through Egypt, if it, the angel of death did not see that blood overhead, that the firstborn in that household would die. So Pharaoh didn't do that. What happens? His firstborn son dies, and he kicks them all out of there. He, in, in just a knee-jerk reaction, he says, get out of here, get out of here. Later he regrets it and comes after them, but that's a celebration of the Passover. Every Hebrew home that had that up there, the angel of death passed over. And so it's a picture for us that we have the blood of Christ over us, marking us, and the angel of death, spiritual death, will pass over us. So his hour had finally come. Remember, he'd been, it's not his time yet, it's not his time yet, it's not, and now the hour to come to depart is here. The hour has come for the real Lamb of God, to be the Passover lamb. What history has been pointing to, the hour has come. He was in full control of everything that was happening. Don't ever think of Jesus as a victim. Don't ever think of him as just being the consequences of men's evil schemes or anything. He was in total control of what was going on. And he's sitting there with his disciples, and he loved them to the end. He loved his own to the end perfection, completeness, a full, the fullest measure of love, unfailing. He never quit loving them. It was the fullest um, measure of love that could happen. He loved them. Now, God loves the world too. He loves the world. But this love for the world, because he doesn't care, he does not his desire that anyone should perish, his love for creation, his love for um, mankind, that love comes to an end once that person dies or rejects the sacrifice of Christ. God's love to that person ends. But to the ones he's chosen, to his church, that love never ends. So, Ephesians 3.19, the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge is there. 
for the people who are believers in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all a creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful passage. He loves us to the end. Where is the end in eternity? It isn't, right? Keeps on and on and on and on. And he knew his hour was coming. Verse 2. We got a contrast. We've been talking about contrasts, haven't we? Boom. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. What a contrast. The love of God that never ends, his love for his, his, his disciples, his church, the, the ones, his flock. And then the next verse is like a contrast into Satan and the darkness of that. The bright light of Christ's love and the satanic darkness of Judas's heart. It's almost a backdrop for it. His love, when it's in the backdrop of darkness, it shines all the more brighter And we're going to take a look at how he's dealing with Judas in this and really be able to see the depth of his love that he had, that he has still. Because when he gets down to washing Judas' feet, he knew what was going to happen. Jesus displays great humility. The person who just had hate harbored in his heart toward this, this Lamb of God. And yet he treated him no differently, a a picture of loving your enemies. Judas is unmoved by any any manifestation of Christ's love toward him. And we were talking about washing feet. I have never had that experience, but the ones of you who have had that and shared it with me, I am very intrigued by it now. So it sounds like it's a very life-changing thing, a very humble thing, a very deep connection with the people that you're with and so this moment of him washing their feet and that closeness there even that couldn't penetrate judas's hardened heart and so we go on in verse three it says jesus knowing and listen to the detail that john puts into this Jesus, knowing, he knows that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he knows this is about to happen. He rose from supper. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That is great detail in that, isn't it? We don't have any detail of them climbing up to that room or anything, but this action that he's doing there, it's almost like a step-by-step step. Takes his outer garment out, pours the water, wraps the towel around him, goes to each disciple, washing their feet and drying their feet. And when he gets to... Simon Peter, we all love Peter, don't we? And he says to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. 
Can you imagine us saying that to God? Hey, don't do that, God. I mean, really, the audacity here, okay? (laughs) Don't wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand. Great love. What great love? Really? Hey, you don't understand that. Complete understanding and compassion for Peter, who's bossing Jesus around, telling him what to do. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand right now. Um, If I do not wash you, you have no share of me. Oh, well, hey, Simon Peter said, Lord, then wash everything, not just my feet, my hands and my head and everything. And Jesus is again The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. John is letting us know here that, and Jesus also, is that he is well aware of Judas in that room, well aware of the hate for him that's in that room, and yet he is treating him with the same kind of love and, and actions that he's giving the other 11. He knows. He knows he's about to return to the Father. He's the Son of God. He left glory. He laid it all behind to come down and take on the form of human. And he knows he's about to ascend back up to that And yet, what is he doing? He's not saying, hey, I'm getting ready. I got my bags packed and everything, and I'm not going to do that anymore. No. He does the most menial, meniscal, lowest task he can do as a servant and washes their feet. His mind is on taking care of them and preparing them and teaching them a lesson. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Matthew 23, 11. Well, Peter's heart is revealed in all of this because Peter is, his vocalness is demonstrating probably a a lot of what's in all of our hearts. We're being sanctified, but boy, have we got a ways to go yet, right? We tell Jesus what to do all the time in our prayer life, don't we? (laughs) He does. He's doing that, isn't he? He's laughing. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about. I know it's best for you. But it's because of his love for us And his love for Peter in all this, he's not going to rise up and say, you don't know who you're talking about, young man. I'm the son of God. No, it's like a a compassion that he has for him, teaching them that the greatest shall be your servant. Jesus' response to him, it's got two, two purposes, two reasons why he's telling him this. First of all, he's telling them that right now they don't really understand what's going on. But hindsight's twenty twenty. You're going to get it later. Matthew twenty twenty eight says, Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That will click in with them later. And he was also telling them and teaching them that only those cleansed by him, only those who believe in, that he's the Son of God and has accepted the gift of his redemption and forgiveness, only those have been completely cleaned. They've had a spiritual cleansing. They have a relationship with him. His atoning death is complete forgiveness of all of their sins, even the sins we're going to do tomorrow, even the sins we're going to do later on this afternoon, because we sin, and we don't even know we sin. God is so holy um, that even our best efforts are but filthy rags. So, so he's forgiven us of all of those things. But we do need a daily cleansing and a sanctification from the defilement of sin that remains in us. So this is what he's, he's teaching them with this. Verse 12, 
Um, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. Then if I, I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention, you guys. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. If you know these things, and you know what, ladies? We know those things because we just studied them. So now what? To be blessed, we need to do those things. Just knowing it isn't going to get us a blessing. Oh, we have all this biblical knowledge and everything. But Jesus is saying, if you do these things, you will be blessed. Be a servant. The suitable response to Christ's love is to be like him. Humble service. In other words, quit bickering. The other Gospels talk about how they were all, who's going, to be the, who's going to sit his right hand, his left hand, and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And that's where their mindset was. And Jesus is saying, no, you guys, knock it off. You want to be like me? What did I just do for you? Love is action. Love is an action word. You are blessed if you do them. So Christ-like love... Not the love of the world. A Christ-like love is the trademark of a true believer. They're going to see it. They're going to they're experience love. It's not just going to be something that we say. So the plan, the great plan of salvation is unfolding. Um, and love, true love, is coming up against the very thing that wants to destroy it here. We see that that conflict that tension and we're going to look at in the next portion here 18 to 21 the rejection of love what is the result of when that love is rejected the hateful destruction that comes about in verse 18 jesus continues speaking i am not speaking of all of you i know whom i have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. We go back to the garden on that. So Jesus is saying that there's one among them that was going to be a betrayer. And they're caught off guard with this. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, you, what is he talking about, you know? Um, but Jesus wasn't caught off guard. Remember, Jesus isn't a victim of someone who unsuspectively was in there ready to betray him. He was well aware of it. Now, this gets kind of a sticky theology here. Not really, but with our limited thinking, it kind of is sticky. Judas is not a puppet. His betrayal was predetermined, yes. Jesus did call him to following his little pack, but he didn't call him to salvation. And yet, it was still his choice. Even though it was predetermined, it was still his choice. This is the tension that's between divine sovereignty and human choice. Okay? 
I'm not going to go any further than that. God's outside time, whatever. He even makes clean vessels for things, and he has dirty vessels that he uses for things also to, to get his purpose through. But Judas was aware of what he was doing. These were choices that Judas was making. So Jesus is telling them that someone's there that's going to betray them. And he's informing the, the apostles of this in verse 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you can believe that I, I am who I am. In other words, it's like a prophetic thing. I'm saying this is going to happen, you guys. It's going to blow you away. And kind of, but then you're going to realize, oh, he told us about this. He was in charge. He knew about it. And it reinforces who he is. I just love God. He's just takes such good care of us, doesn't he? <laughs> letting, us know, letting us know ahead of time. Revelation, here it is. Letting us know ahead of time. No fear, ladies. No fear. Pestilence or anything else out there. We know how the story ends. Um, because he loves them. He wants them to, to continue to believe in them and not question or have doubt when this happens, when a betrayal, a betrayer, um, a traitor rises up amongst them, that it's not going to throw them off their game. When they scatter later in fear and, and they, they don't know what's going on and they arrest him, um, and then when everyone starts thinking, well, you guys are a bunch of idiots because you had a traitor in you, that's not going to discredit the whole thing. He wants to encourage them to stand strong with this. And so Jesus says all this, and then it says that he became troubled in spirit again. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. That is a heart-wrenching, broken heart that the, the love of God was bumping up against a wall, a hardened heart of rejection, rejection, rejection. For three years, Judas rejected this love, this knowledge that was poured out, the kindness that was poured out to him, it was rejected. It never penetrated his heart. He never let it get past his self-centered, money-minded, we're going to make a great kingdom here, and I'm going to be in charge of all the money bags and the, the, bank, the bank Jerusalem that's going to be up, you know. His focus was on that. And over and over and over for three years, Christ lived with him and, 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 and extended love to him, and it never penetrated his hardened heart. So he becomes um, upset and troubled in spirit. Also, probably troubled in spirit, he's looking at the cross just a couple days away. And also, a little troubled in spirit, we have the presence of Satan hanging out too. I'm sure there's a little irritability there with that. Anyways, the apostles are stunned when he says this. One of you are going to betray me. And they're right away, oh my goodness, looking at one another, uncertain of who, who is he speaking about. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, there's John. He always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved, never by name. That's kind of a humble thing, but the one that Jesus loved. That's a good... I'm, I'm the person that Jesus loves. Every single one of us consistent. We, I'm the one that Jesus loves. Oh, no, I am too. Oh, he loves us all. <laughs> Does he love you better? No, he probably loves you better. We're going to get into the humility thing. But anyways, the disciple that Jesus loves is John. And so Peter asks him to lean over and ask him, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Um, and so Peter 
motioned to John and asked him, leaning back on him, Jesus said, Lord, who, who is it? Who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. That gesture of dipping bread by the host and offering it is a, a loving, honorable thing. If you're at a dinner party there in this culture, for the host to do that, almost like, do you want to pour the tea? Would maybe be an equivalent. Or would you say the prayers for our... You know, you, you have these honorable positions that people can take around a, a, a dinner table. So this was a, a, an, a final gesture of Christ. Not, and I always thought it was he's identifying it this way. But it's an actual gesture of love reaching out to Judas again. Even that was rejected. He took it, but he rejected it just like all the other ones. And in that moment, I believe the day of salvation ended for Judas. That was it. Final, that was it. Satan enters him. And hell arrived for Judas. And maybe that's why Jesus' heart was troubled. Divine mercy gave way to divine judgment as Judas was handed over to Satan. Satan entered him. In reality, Judas wasn't selling out Christ for 30 pieces. He was actually selling his own soul to Satan for 30 pieces, wasn't he, at that moment? It was a very dark time. Jesus tells him, you know, what you are going to do, go and do quickly. And now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that maybe Judas had to have the money bags and Jesus was telling him to go buy some food for the feast or to go give money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, and he took it, he immediately went out and it was dark. That's a pretty profound statement right there. It was dark, a heavy, gloomy, oppressive. It was nighttime, but it was also dark. Um, treachery. Satan probably saw it as an apparent victory, but in reality, it's going to be his ultimate defeat. Because Judas's treachery was going to just glorify who God is. And we can pull from way back in Genesis again with um, Joseph and his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So the wheels are put into motion. With Judas gone from the room now, probably the... Maybe it lit up a little bit in there. Judas and Satan have departed the room. He can turn his attention again to his disciples um, for his pretty much farewell address. Because after this, he's going to go to the garden. They're going to get arrested. And so this is his last time here uh, before the crucifixion when he's with them. And the cross is a profound expression of Christ's love. The cross is. The cross isn't. There's a cross. Here's a cross. The empty cross, the empty cross, is the profound expression of Christ's love. 
Now is the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of God glorified. Look how many times he says glory and glorified in here. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Boy, what's the topic there? English people, glory, glory. And what's about to happen? The cross, right? So we see here that little children, he's so affectionate toward them. Yet a little while and I'm with you, you will seek me, just as I have told the Jews about this. So now I also will say it to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Of course, Peter can't leave that alone. But let's take a look at this before we get to Peter. The cross appeared to be very shameful because it, it was shame. It was, it was the sins of, of the church, the sins of all who accepted the, the penalty. Of course, God is, is unlimited, his um, atonement. It's only effective, though, for those who receive it. It was a shameful thing. It, was a, it, it could have been a, a disastrous defeat, but it wasn't it, because it was through the cross that he was able to give life to us and that his glory was disp- displayed. Remember, we've been talking about this. God is glorified when his attributes are displayed. God is glorified when his attributes are displayed, and we acknowledge that they are. That's him being glorified. What is, what is on display here on the cross? His death purchased salvation by satisfying the demands of God's justice. His death destroyed the power of sin and destroyed the power of Satan. It was through the cross that the glorious nature of God was supremely put on display. If it hadn't have been for the cross, we wouldn't have been able to see these characteristics. Christ's death displayed God's power by raising him from the dead. Because all the hatred and, and fiendish wickedness of Satan and, and evil was just trying to keep him down. And that was destroyed. He destroyed them. So the power of God won over all the wickedness. Through the resurrection, it just destroyed the power of Satan, sin, and death. Power. Christ's death declared his justice because the wages of sin is death. You just can't look the other way and say, oh, we'll just forget about that. Doesn't work that way with the holy God. Someone had to die. God's justice was put on display. Christ's death revealed God's holiness, the holiness of God. Remember, when we get to it, we'll we'll cross it again. The father's eyes could not look on evil. And when his son took all of that evil on him, the father's pure eyes could not look. He had to turn away. And that's when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a demonstration of God's holiness. Christ's death expressed his faithfulness. From the beginning, Adam and Eve, the beginning, because of their disobedience and we were, the human race was plunged into sin, the promise of a redeemer has been throughout Scripture. God is faithful. And the final one that's displayed, Christ's death was the most powerful demonstration of God's love. He did not have to do this. He could have wiped us all out and started new, couldn't he? He could have. But he didn't because he chose to love us. 
Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. There's a oneness there with that. So all this glory is going on here. God is looking past the cross to his exaltation where he's going to be placed at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In Hebrews 12, too, I just love this verse. For the joy that was set, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Boy, if that is not cognitive therapy, I don't know. <laughs> He's not looking about what's happening right now. He set his sights on something past. He put his mindset on when he was going to be exalted above everything else, and he endured the cross. That is love. His glorification meant that he would be leaving them. He had to leave them. And so he wanted them to be prepared. So he's affectionately helping them to understand. So verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay. Yeah, I love them. I love these guys. I've been hanging around with them for three years. I've seen the, the good, the bad, the ugly of all of them, and, and I love them. Hmm. New commandment. You love them just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This new commandment, with what he just did by washing their feet is a itty-bitty kind of symbolic glimpse of what he's about to do on the cross is now the new standard of love. The new standard of love that Christians are to have for each other. The bar's been raised because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Let me tell you something, though. To do something like that Truly, truly, let me say this. <laughs> it is impossible to do. You're not going to do it. I'm just going to let you know ahead of time. You're not going to be able to do it without the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. There's just no way you can do that in the flesh. So if you're having a hard time loving that husband who leaves his socks around or those kids that leave stuff there, check, am I working from the flesh or am I working from the power of the Spirit? Because God is love. That kind of love is not a flesh love. This kind of love is a characteristic of God. Romans 5.5 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What are some practical ways to demonstrate this? Because they're probably thinking, wow, we're going to do that. What? You know, what? Yeah, we can wash feet. They really didn't have a clue yet, really, what was about to come. Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. But we are, we're supposed to get it, you guys. Practical ways to manifest this kind of love. 
Be willing to apologize. Be willing to seek forgiveness. Be willing to grant forgiveness. Because that cross is all about forgiveness. And I honestly believe this. I've been practicing psychotherapy for 25 years. And I honestly believe that if someone is not a believer in Jesus Christ, they do not have the ability to forgive. You know why? Because they never experienced it. They can say it, but boom, 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 they've got all those grudges, all those calculations filed away back in here, filed away back in here, filed away back in here, and we open that file door every time something else happens. The power to be able to actually forgive comes from God himself because we have experienced the life-changing power that he has forgiven us. Forgiveness goes one of two ways. God forgives us. We forgive others. And I'll just go on to say this because a lot of people stumble on this in the church. You can, I'll send you a bill later, but anyways. <laughs> Many people will say, I just can't forgive myself. I'm just, I did this, and I just have a really hard time forgiving myself. I just feel so guilty. Why? I can't forgive myself. That is bad theology. There's no place in God's word that says we forgive ourselves. God forgives us, we forgive others. What they really are struggling with is being able to accept the forgiveness of God. And they need to realize that and get off their high horse like they even have the power to forgive because once I do something wrong, I'm the one in jail and I'm not in a position to get myself out of jail. He's got to get me out of jail. So to, 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 to practically work out this love that Jesus is telling them to do in this new commandment, is to be, to apologize, own up, especially to your kids. Teach them to seek forgiveness and to be willing to grant forgiveness. That is the true mark of a Christian that the world will notice, okay? It's not about jewelry. It's not about my cross I wear. It's not about my what would Jesus do bracelet, not about, you know, my cross tattoo. It's not about any, you know, my bumper sticker on my car. It is about love. Jesus says, and well, John says in 1 John 3, whoever does not love abides in death. So Peter, let's just end with Peter here because that's, he's in the chapter. Simon Peter got a lot to learn, and he does. He learns some really hard lessons. Said to him, Lord, Lord, where are you going? He just told them, right? You guys can't come. <laughs> well, maybe they can't come, but I can come, God. Is he humble? No. Jesus answered him, where am I going? You cannot come. follow me, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? He doesn't get it. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus' love for this man, it's in this gospel, is for us to understand. His love is not put off by, by his overconfidence, pride. Um, he loves us. We don't have to get our act together. We don't have to be perfect. He loves us for who we are, why we are yet sinners. Christ's love is deep for Peter, deep enough that he's not going to let him slip away. 
So our trademark of a true believer is love. Let me leave you with this thought. What if, what if God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, what if the Trinity was up in heaven and they were talking about us down here saying, wow, that human race, they really are just going off the deep. And we are, we're going to hell in a handbag quick. They're just really pathetic and everything, you know. Yeah, what are we going to do about it? Well, I really love them. I really love them. Yeah, so do I. I love them too. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go and peek down over, the, over heaven later. What if he just said he loved us and didn't act on it? Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's got to have actions to it. So if you have a bumper sticker on your car that says what church you go to, <laughs> you better be driving very, very nice. And I'm telling you, this hit my... This really um, is very applicable. I, I look at things now and I make decisions now based on, wow, I can really extend love here. Here's an opportunity for me to really extend some love. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. We don't get it, but we are so, so grateful that you do. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us to live. Help us not to ignore that little prompting inside of us that you have put there to love. To your glory, in the name of Christ, amen.